Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Coming up on Primetime Politics, devastation in the wake of Fiona. We'll speak to MPs from Atlantic Canada as they share what they are seeing and what they're hearing from residents on the ground also. We're also deploying military personnel to support local authorities on the ground, naval vessels and aircraft. Ottawa sends in Canadian forces to help with recovery. We'll find out what they'll be doing once they arrive in the region. And... These costs are now almost entirely driven by domestic transmission of COVID-19. As expected, Ottawa is dropping a number of COVID-19 border restrictions and masks will now be voluntary on planes and on trains. We'll look at the reasons. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Atlantic Canadians are still assessing the damage in the aftermath of Fiona, the post-tropical storm arriving in Canada on Saturday. But unlike other tropical storms and hurricanes, Fiona did not lose much of its strength when it made landfall here. The result? Devastation, prompting this response from the federal government. We're very much focused right now on just getting through these initial days of, uh, of chaos, of disruption, of people uh, worried about where they're going to sleep, uh, worried about how they're going to get through the next couple of days, get the power back on. That is our entire focus right now. But as I've said uh, to the premiers, uh, as I've said to the mayors I've spoken with, uh, the federal government will be there as a partner. That was the Prime Minister from earlier today outlining his government's response to the devastation. Now, Goody Hutchings was a part of that news conference. Ms. Hutchings is the MP for the riding of Long Range Mountains in Newfoundland. She's also the Minister of Rural Economic Development, and she joins us right now in Porto Basque. Minister Hutchings, thank you for being with us today. Michael, it's certainly my pleasure to join you from Porto Basque. Listen, I know it's been a, a difficult weekend for everybody, but, but I'm hoping you might begin our conversation here with sharing uh, with us what you've seen, what you, you've heard from Newfoundlanders. How would you describe the severity uh, of the aftermath? Michael, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians were people of the sea. We're used to bad storms. That's what we were comes to. But Speaking with people since I've been on the ground, I arrived in Port of Basque last evening. Everybody's saying, I have never, ever seen a storm like this. I spoke with a gentleman who's 83, who's lived here all his life. I've never seen a storm like this. So when I reached around to the mayors on Friday, we all said, yes, we have our emergency preparedness plan ready. Yep, we have everything in place. Should this be as bad as it's projected to be? But it's interesting because we are a people of the sea. Everyone commented like, oh my golly, it's a full moon which means higher tides. So I can tell you before the, the storm surge actually hit, they had record tides here, which just made for the perfect recipe for a real disaster, which is what's here. On the ground, I can tell you the pictures do not show justice. It is heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching to see the devastation that's here. I had a meeting with the mayor last night and the town and some representatives this morning, their count now was 76 homes totally destroyed or destroyed with structural damage that you just can't repair. So that's 76 families just with no place to go. 
I can tell you that the town, as always, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and all Canadians come together to pitch in. Mm -hmm. um, I'm staying in a local hotel where they've turned over rooms, vacant rooms to give people a place to sleep. But we're working with the town, the province, and, and other areas that are impacted. It's just not the Port of Basque area. To make sure that we put the short term in place, make sure people have food and shelter and clothing. And then what is the next process to get these communities back on their mm -hmm. feet and i can tell people it's a long process yeah a long a long process as you say and i think it, it is fair to underline once again we, we see these horrific images on tv online but really doesn't convey at times the, the severity of a storm and what it does to families uh, the armed forces are being deployed they're going to uh, head towards atlantic provinces of course newfoundland labrador included to assist with recovery efforts uh, minister could you tell us exactly what they'll be doing once they're on the ground uh, that's a great question michael so the province on the rfa the request for assistance yesterday with uh, with, with us, the federal government, and Minister Nan did an overview of what the province has requested to date. Uh, the vessel is uh, setting sail now. I think it's HMCS Merge, Margaret Bugden and Budgel, and she's going to drop into some of these rural communities along the south coast that are a little more out of the way type of thing to do a wellness ass assessment and, and then report back on what other, um, how else we can help in these areas. Um, I know they will be able to help too with the debris cleanup on the ground, but I keep saying that when you when you walk down the streets as I did this morning, you see the front of a house, but then you look behind it and literally see the whole basement, the whole foundation just washed away. And this is the fear here of don't go into these homes until, and again, the, the, the uh, military is gonna help with this and, and help with the uh, local engineers as well. We need to make sure that these structures are safe before people can go in and retrieve their household items or go in and get treasures, memorabilia that I know they want to. But it is incredible to see how the backs of these houses and the foundation has just been washed away and taken away. I talked with a person this morning who was talking about a hundred foot seas. Like that is just incredible. So there were waves going in places that were never hit before. So when the when the military get on the ground, there's just devastating cleanup to be done, but also make sure that things are structurally sound before we can help people go in to retrieve some goods. And then, of course, the military will work with the province and the community to put a plan in place as we go forward to clean up this and then start the, the building back, you know, mm -hmm. and there's still areas here with no power. Um, and then what is the damage done to the municipal infrastructure? You know, when you look at storm sewers and wastewater outfall, like they they have so much work to do to check all that. To let sure let me jump in on that point though, because you, you say there's so much work to do. And there was a question raised during the news conference as to whether or not the military might be able to expand its deployment if it's actually needed. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as you know, the, the RFA request for assistance comes from the province. Right now, we're doing what the province has asked us to do. I know the Premier is coming here later today, and I'm sure when we walk around with he and his local representatives and uh, the mayor, it'll be made quite clear that perhaps there needs to be a bigger ask of what we can do. But I can tell you, we are here ready to help in whatever way we can. And as I keep saying, Michael, this is a long plan. When you see the infrastructure that has to get put back in these areas, we're not talking months, we're talking years. Mm -hmm. Now, as we end our conversation, I think it's worthwhile noting as well that your government is promising to match donations to help with recovery efforts. Uh, can you talk to us about that? 
the donations are incredible. There's an incredible program with the Red Cross, as I've said, and they're doing work on the ground now. Locally, I just went to the Lions Club behind us here, uh, where there are there's a tractor trailer coming from that stopped at various Lions Clubs across the province coming here with household goods and clothing and items that these families need because they left with nothing, Michael. Uh, the Salvation Army has a food truck going around. They're doing stuff as well. It is truly amazing. The volunteers and this volunteer town council, I have to remind you that these town councils in these small rural areas, they're volunteers. They all have other full-paying jobs. They are volunteers, and they're working together with all the volunteers and the first responders to look after their community at this time. And a huge thank you to each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. Minister, I know it's been a very busy few days and a very heartbreaking one, so thank you very much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael, and everyone, please stay safe. With more on Fiona and what the storm left behind, we're now joined by three members of Parliament. Cody Blois is the Liberal MP for the riding of Kings Hanson, Nova Scotia. Dr. Stephen Ellis is the Conservative MP for the riding of Cumberland Colchester, also in Nova Scotia. And Richard Cannings is the MP for South Okanagan, West Kootenay in British Columbia. Hello to the three of you. Hello, hey, Michael. Good afternoon, Michael. Uh, Mr. Blois, I'm going to begin with you here. As you were in your riding this past weekend, what was it like to be there? What did you see? Uh, look, uh, certainly King's Hance was spared the same impact that we saw in Cape Breton, in Prince Edward Island, and Western Newfoundland. Uh, but we saw extreme uh, weather in terms of wind. Uh, I think the recorded elements were uh, up over 100 kilometers an hour, uh, lots of downed trees lots of individuals without power, uh, particularly our agriculture sector, uh, sustained some level of da damage. You can think about the fruit growing sector in the Annapolis Valley. There's a number of apples on the ground. So uh, there remains households in my riding that don't have power, uh, but we're in a much better situation than some of the scenes you would have seen from Cape Breton, Prince Edward Island, and Western Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. Better situations, you say, but regardless, a powerful storm that ripped through the Atlantic. Dr. Ellis, I'm wondering if you would talk to us about your experience and what you saw when you were in your riding and really the kind of stories that you're now hearing from people across the province. Yeah, thanks for that, Michael. You know, realistically, the biggest thing that we see, uh, down trees, power poles, houses uh, without roofs, businesses without roofs, uh, the, uh, the arena in Truro without a roof. Uh, so we know that this has a very, very significant impact. Uh, when I left this morning, about 40% of Nova Scotia power customers were still without power, uh, which of course then uh, leads on to the difficulties with spoiled food, et cetera. Uh, it's, been, it's been absolutely devastating. And certainly uh, to echo my colleagues' comments, uh, we know that in Truro, the maximum sustained wind was around 132 kilometers an hour. So uh, very, very significant wind and significant amounts of rainfall uh, and to add insult to injury there was a warning for a water spout uh, coming up the Bay of Funday uh, early this afternoon as well so difficult uh, conditions remain absolutely. Mm -hmm. Difficult conditions and, and you know Mr. Cannings I, I think it speaks to the difficulty the fact that you don't represent a riding in Atlantic Canada but still you, you asked for the speaker and did get a debate on the situation in the region why did you take that step why do you think it's important to be having this debate? Well, I mean, first of all, my thoughts are with the people uh, who live on the Atlantic coast of Canada. I have lived uh, there in uh, for a number of years. I lived in on the island of Newfoundland, so I know what Atlantic weather can look like, and and I know the the strong resilience of Atlantic uh, people. But uh, I'm the NDP critic for 
uh, emergency preparedness and climate resilience. And I've witnessed, you know, disasters over the last few years in my own riding. Uh, and I felt that we really needed to talk about this, to talk about how the federal government needs to move in and, and help these individuals, these communities. Uh, they can bounce back, but they really need help now. And it's it's an important debate to have right now to to really dwell upon what the government can do now and in the future to to help these people and communities. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because as you say, there's the immediate and then there's the long-term discussion to be had around this. Uh, Mr. Blois, I'm going to bring you back in because the Prime Minister, as we all know, did cancel his trip to Japan to keep an eye on the storm as it passed through the Atlantic region. Uh, military is now being sent, in some cases have arrived. When it comes to Nova Scotia, what do you think the focus will be in the short term? What do you think the focus needs to be right now look and and we welcome the opportunity to have that conversation that debate tonight in the house of commons and as was i hope articulated during question period uh the government of canada has moved swiftly to support the provinces uh in both the atlantic region and of course eastern quebec as well uh, this was a situation that we have been monitoring for a number of days prior to when fiona actually hit our shores um but as you mentioned, Michael, there are troops on the ground right now, uh, both in HRM, in Cape Breton, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland and Labrador. So as soon as those requests were coming from the provinces, uh, we've been responding with the requisite support and help. I also want to make sure that uh, your viewers know that uh, the Government of Canada is going to be matching contributions uh, to the Canadian Red Cross uh, over the next 30 days and perhaps longer if, ne if necessary. But these are going to be important measures. In terms of fiscal support from the government of Canada, uh, the model will be similar to what happened in British Columbia, where provinces will actually have the assessment on the ground and will be there to cost share to help make sure that uh, we can be uh, part of not only the cleanup, uh, but the longer term rebuilding of some of these communities, as has been has mentioned. Mm -hmm. When you hear that, Dr. Ellis, when you see the, the moves that the government has made so far, what's your assessment? What are you watching out for right now? I think what uh, Atlantic Canadians really want is processes that are timely and processes that are transparent uh, and implemented quickly. Time is of the essence very clearly. Uh, again, cleanup uh, needs to occur uh, immediately if it doesn't and we have more events, then, then of course that's adding insult to injury. I think the other thing that I mentioned in the House today, Michael, that's very, very important is the decimation of the fishing industry. Uh, certainly on the Northumberland Strait and in Prince Edward Island, uh, we were in the midst of uh, lobster season. Many wharves, of course, have been destroyed that have been uh, perhaps neglected uh, over the years and now they're, they're decimated. So that being said, uh, we need to understand what the process of rebuilding is and, and how that's going to affect perhaps even the length of lobster season so that uh, the Atlantic Canadians are able to continue to feed their families. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Cannings, as you suggested right off top, there's the short term and there's also what you'd like to, to be handled as, as part of the debate in the House uh, this evening. Talk to us about perhaps the more long-term picture because that seems to be something that your party's raising right now. Well, even the, the sort of intermediate term, you know, my experience with uh, some of the uh, disasters we've had in British Columbia. I, my riding uh, Grand Forks was flooded in 2018. We had the floods in Merritt and Princeton, Abbotsford last fall. And the, the immediate response was good and prompt, but these are small communities that 
you know, under the federal bureaucracy, we're expected to shoulder 20% of the, the costs of rebuilding. They simply can't do that. And so we have to kind of move past that bureaucracy and make sure those communities and people are are taken care of uh, in a prompt fashion. Uh, in BC, we had communities going through the winter uh, still just in devastated form. So that's what I'm looking for in the intermediate term. And in the long term, I think we have to really start facing up to the fact that these storms, these climate uh, events are happening more often and we really have to plan for them and we have to put money uh, into not just disaster reaction, but you know, shoring up the coasts, shoring up dikes along rivers, uh, dealing with forest situations for fires. We really have to make sure that we're planning for the future and it will save us money in the future. But you know, so it's an investment. And that's where I think for the real long term, that's where we have to be start thinking about that, the climate adaptation part of this story. And certainly the, this is going to be a long process. We hear from a lot of different people, the, the rebuild and the cleanup, and now, of course, the debate, which we'll be watching very closely this evening. But for now, uh, Cody Blois, Dr. Stephen Ellis, and Richard Cannings, thank you so much for the time today. Thank, thank you, Michael. Michael. Based on the data accumulated over the last few weeks and months, we are announcing that the Government of Canada will not renew the order in Council that expires on September the 30th and will therefore remove all COVID-19 border requirements for all travellers entering Canada. This includes the removal of all federal testing, quarantine and isolation requirements, as well as the mandatory submission of health information in arrive count. And that was the health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, from earlier today, announcing what was widely speculated, that the federal government is dropping border restrictions as of Saturday. Now, that means the end of mandatory vaccinations, the end of random testing, quarantines, and the mandatory use of the ArriveCan app. But it also goes further than what was expected, as Ottawa will also end the mandatory use of masks on planes and trains. Well, with more on this significant move in Canada's pandemic strategy, we're now reaching out to Earl Brown. He is a professor of biochemistry, microbiology, and immunology with the University of Ottawa. Professor Brown, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here, Michael. Now, in listening to the announcement today, uh, the government justifies this uh, change in strategy by arguing that the Omicron wave has uh, largely passed, that vaccination rates are relatively high, hospitalization and death rates relatively low. What's your response to that argument in dropping these regulations? Well, these regulations were put in uh, to protect Canadians. And it was largely a, a position to look at our border, to harden our border, to detect viruses uh, in people who possibly might have brought it in through infections. So we're late in the, the pandemic. Uh, are we over it? Are we almost over it? We can argue a little bit, but we're nearing the end of it, hopefully. And we've gone through seven waves now, and uh, most of us are vaccinated. Uh, the burden on the healthcare system is lessening. We still have four to 5,000 people in hospital. It's not gone away, but we're handling it uh, with vaccination. The series of disease for most Canadians is comparable to the risk we have with other infections we deal with 
year in and year out. Mm-hmm. So you're comfortable with this dropping of regulations, this this ending of the uh, order in council? Well, yes. Yeah, so uh, border restrictions are largely pretty ineffective at keeping viruses out of your country. Uh, that being said, there's also a surveillance aspect. Do you see certain people are infected in the first uh, variant, say, possibly coming in? So there's some value to it, but that value decreases with time. Uh, we do have surveillance on the ground, even if we stop surveilling as much on the border. It's not like we're, we're closing our eyes. Uh, and there's a certain timeliness. Uh, we have to get along with life somewhat, but it's not ignoring risk. Uh, it's dealing with risk. We've got vaccination programs. We've got more drugs to treat people who get serious infections. Uh, so we are able to cope uh, that much better than the early stages. Uh, so I would agree that it's it's time to uh, lessen the restrictions at the border. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition, and I think this was the part that was uh, up for debate last week, was whether or not the government would also add to it uh, an end to uh, an end to the requirement of wearing a mask while on a plane or on a train. What do you think of the masking regulations being dropped in those instances? Well, I think it goes hand in hand with just the lessening of the burden of the disease on Canadians. But that being said, uh, a mask is a fairly uh, convenient way of decreasing spread of uh, infection, especially in closed places. So whereas the government may not mandate it now, they're still uh, recommending it. And I wholeheartedly uh, endorse that, that if you're in with many people, especially if you're at high risk, use your protections. A mask is still uh, very good at decreasing the rate of infection. Mm-hmm. Can you... Uh help explain something though because on the one hand we we hear this great course of people saying that you know the numbers are improving vaccination rates are up and therefore we can drop uh, this order in council but on the other side there are those that push back or at least have a question as to the numbers because we were told that there would be an increase in infections in the fall and we're really just starting the autumn now is it too early to be dropping this order in council if we are expecting the numbers to go up in the coming weeks. Well, that's an interesting point. And yeah, we're we're entering the winter. That's always a respiratory virus uh, infection season. And so we've got our flus and our RSVs and other other viruses. We also have COVID-19 in the mix now. So it will be pushing against us as those other infections are. And uh, we are in fairly decent shape to deal with that in the 85% of Canadians have two doses which keeps you out of the hospital somewhat, but won't protect you against infection. Lots of people have three and four doses, which is better at stopping you getting infected in the first place. So we do have a certain amount of immunity in the population. We've got medicines and, and treatments. So yes, we may, we'll be, we're coming into, uh, you know, cold and flu season, COVID's in there too. Uh, Maybe a fairly busy season because we've had two years of people not getting those infections, therefore we're not carrying on the antibody those recurrent infections. So it may be a pretty active uh, flu, COVID-19 and respiratory virus uh, season. Uh, the hospitals are getting back to normal-ish, though they're under stress. Uh, I think at some point you have to decrease uh, restrictions if they don't give you enough uh, value. And right now, uh, they're not detecting enough infections at the border to say it's worth keep, keeping doing that to protect Canadians. Uh, we'll still be looking at the virus in the country, looking at variants. The virus continues to vary. There's a new variant that's increasing in Europe and, and elsewhere. It's uh, uh, 
sublineage of Omicron uh, BA4, but it acts much like that virus, so maybe a bit more of the same. Uh, so yes, we're, we're proceeding with infections, COVID-19 still there, but less of a burden as it was before. Mm -hmm. So what do you say then to Canadians who either they intend to travel by train or by plane, or at the very least just concerned about this change in pandemic policy? What do you say in terms of a best path forward? Well, I'm saying for those who are going to travel by plane or train, uh, before you were mandated by the government to mask and have a vaccine, uh, I would recommend you still have both of those going forward, but it's your personal decision as to whether you board uh, with a vaccine uh, acquired previously or whether you wear a mask. And I would encourage people to wear a mask because we just talked about the fact we're going to enter the winter season where all sorts of respiratory viruses transmit. So protect yourself with a mask. Uh, it's a personal decision and those who are at higher risk are gonna take that decision uh, more strictly. And uh, those who are at less risk will have different considerations. Earl Brown, thank you so much for the time. And really, thanks for pushing through the wind that's blowing your computer right now as well. Thank you for this. <laughs> good to talk, Michael. And good to talk to you. Take care. Now, the government has been under pressure to loosen border restrictions, most vocally from conservative politicians, but also pressure from the airline industry, the tourism industry, and border communities like Niagara Falls, which is why we're now going to Niagara Falls to speak with the city's mayor, Jim Diodati. Jim, good to see you again. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Listen, I want to begin with your reaction. This is something that you wanted, a loosening of border restrictions. Are you happy to get past this phase of the pandemic strategy? We absolutely are. We're very grateful. I mean, clearly, I wish it had to happen before the tourism season, but just the same, we're grateful that it happened. We always said we'd follow the science. We were supportive of the measures when they were first put in place. And uh, we know that the time came and they didn't make any sense. And I'm glad that we're finally moving forward. Moving forward, as you say, it's going to come to an end on Saturday. Do you expect to see an immediate impact with the loosening of those restrictions? Yes and no. So, so yeah, there's been a lot of people waiting with bated breath. But part of the problem now, though, is the message is out there that we're closed. And that's been the message that's been reinforced over and over through word of mouth and through media. And, and that's my big concern, the long-term negative residual impact of people believing that we're essentially closed here. So my suggestion was we need to have a grand reopening of Canada. Get the prime minister and the premiers together, cut a huge ribbon, roll out a symbolic red carpet, backed by a big media advertising campaign to let the other markets know, specifically the U.S., that once again, we are open for their business. Now, of course, the federal government has been highly criticized uh, by some circles for keeping the restrictions for as long as they did. But there was a call to tighten borders to make sure COVID and its variants were not imported to this country, in particular during the early days of the pandemic. Do you think the regulations served any good or where do you think it changed? You know, I think in the beginning it gave us a, a, a sense of comfort. And I think we didn't know what we were dealing with and, and we were learning. This was new for all of us. So we did support it. I can tell you in the tourist industry, we followed through on all COVID protocols and we all agreed we'd follow the science as it evolved because we learned a lot during this process. So in the beginning, it seemed to make a lot of sense, but then it, we hit a point where we realized 99% of spread was within the community. It wasn't across the border. And at that point, I think we needed to maybe follow suit with what they were doing in other parts of the world, like Europe and New Zealand, and open up our borders because the collateral damage has been border towns, tourism, the tourism industry, 
just devastated. And for us to rebound, you know, we, we need to get back in the game as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Back in the game, and as you say, you want this grand opening. But, you know, they really are, and I don't have to tell you this, two stories when it comes to Niagara Falls. One is the tourism trade, and the other uh, are the everyday lives of residents in your city. How will that change now that these restrictions are going to be loosened? So that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up. And a lot of people don't understand. For people that live on a border town like in Niagara Falls, we call it going over the river. And I know they say the same thing in Windsor. So we go over the river into Niagara Falls, New York. And we see it just as another part of town, one big city divided by a border. So for us, it's nothing to shoot across, to visit some family or friends, pick up some groceries, maybe gas, go for dinner. It's just what we do like any other town going across town. And it specifically targeted, it seemed, a lot of seniors. And I'm overgeneralizing here, but seniors by and large are not as tech savvy as younger. And I can tell you, my dad's a great example. My dad's 80, he's got a flip phone. He doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't use a computer. So guys like my dad, they were stuck. They could not cross the border. And my mom and dad, every Thursday, that's what they do. They go over the river, they go shopping, they go out for dinner, and they come back. And that's what a lot of people do. So a lot of them have been split from family and friends, missed important dates like funerals and weddings. So I can tell you, those people are so happy. They're jumping for joy that we can go back to the way it used to be on the border. Yep, as of Saturday. Uh, Jim Diodati, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me, Michael. You're very welcome. And as we say thank you to the Mayor of Niagara Falls, we want to thank you as well for joining us this evening right here on Primetime Politics. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.